Lord, we give this time to you, God, and we ask that your spirit would come upon us, that you would inspire us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us in the truth of your word. God, that whatever we need to hear, Lord, you would take all the distractions away so that we can focus on your word and that we can grow in our relationship with you. Lord, we know, Holy Spirit, you're the teacher, so please teach us in your truth. I pray, God, that this text specifically uh, would come to life in our lives, God, change us from the inside out and inspire us to uh, maybe continue doing the things that we're already doing right um, or continue or, or start doing the things that maybe we know we're supposed to and we have it. And most of all, Lord, we would recognize how much you love us and the grace that you poured out on us. So speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been going through the book of Acts. Um, big event that took place in the last couple of chapters was what? Well, it was Peter. He was given a vision from the Lord to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember that sheet that came out with all the unclean animals? God said, rise and eat. But it was an illustration to teach a spiritual lesson. And again, it was for him to know that God was presenting the gospel now to the Gentiles. So he opened up the door to the Gentiles. Peter, he ends up going to this guy Cornelius, uh, his house uh, with a bunch of other people that were in his house. Cornelius um, was a centurion of the Roman army. And we see through Peter, God used him and bring many people unto the Lord. Well, then in Acts chapter 11, we basically see that story again, but it's in a different context. This time, Peter is telling the church in Jerusalem, he's saying, hey guys, listen, God directed me to do this. It's not just I had some emotional urge to share the gospel with Gentiles. God told me, he confirmed this direction. So he shares the story of how God confirmed that direction so that the early church would know this was one, wasn't of Peter, this was of God working through the life of Peter. Now we'll be in that second part of Acts chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 19. But what we're going to see in this chapter is that the church is continuing to be scattered all really based on early persecution, specifically the martyrdom of Stephen. So the church is spreading, which means the gospel is spreading, and more and more people are coming unto faith. But what we say see is not just people becoming believers, but people taking it upon themselves to operate in the calling that God's called them to. We see these early believers participating in their faith. That's the title of this teaching, empowered to participate, empowered to participate. This is one of the functions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit truly empowers us to be active in our faith, active both in our pursuit of God, but also active in the work that he's called us to among the body of Christ. Let me show you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts and how everybody in the body of Christ has a role that they're called to play and be a part of. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4. It says, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Meaning, 
that God has created each and every one of you individually, has wired you specifically for the profit of the entire body of Christ. Well, God, it's his responsibility to to gift us. It's our responsibility to respond to God's giftings and participate and be active and use the gift that God's given us again to edify the body of Christ and ultimately glorify him. We each have a part to play. Now, if you have any type of family, uh, when we look at the roles that Bible gives us, uh, specifically in the New Testament, we see that there's a lot of parallels between the family life and the life that God has called us to in the family of God. For example, the Bible tells us that our relationship with Jesus is like a bride and groom. Literally, we're the bride of Christ. So with that role as the bride of Christ, I have certain responsibilities. I need to actively participate in that relationship. Say you're married. If you're the only one putting forth effort in that marriage, what's that marriage going to look like? Not very good, right? And sometimes we expect that of God. God, you do all the work and I'll just, you know, see what you do. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We have an active role to play in our pursuit and our relationship with God. But the Bible doesn't only say that believers are the bride of Christ. The Bible also teaches that we're the body body of Christ. And he literally, the Lord says, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you have siblings or you have children, we can start to recognize what that looks like practically. Maybe you have certain kids that do certain tasks. Anyone have their kids do chores? Yeah, maybe. Okay, if you don't, all right, you can do all the chores or you don't have kids. That's fine. Um, Jude's a little young to be doing chores yet, but as soon as he can stand, I'm going to make him mow, mow the front yard. That's just the reality. My dad made me do it early. He's going to be doing it early. Um, he can already like walk and push those little things. It's like a lawnmower. I figured it'd be like the same. But anyways, the point of it is with this family thing, we have roles to play, right? We have certain responsibilities. Our parents give us roles. There's chores we need to do. We're in addition to the family. It's not just, oh, everybody else in the family takes care of me. It's I take care of them too. There's this mutual relationship that's going on. And that's what the Bible teaches us uh, in regards to our role, right? We each have roles to play. We have a part to play. And some of that part comes through the spiritual gifts that God has called us to. Again, he gifts us, but we have the responsibility to use the gifts and be an addition to the body of Christ. The church isn't just a place that we go to. It's a family that we're a part of. That's what the Bible teaches. It's not just a building. It's the people. That's the church in the Bible. And that's the church who's being referred to here in Acts chapter 11, look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So we see the church is still scattering. This is many years later after Stephen was persecuted and the church is still scattering. We see uh, Stephen's persecution back in Acts chapter 7. If you remember, Stephen, he preaches this powerful sermon and he's rewarded with stones, right? He ends up getting killed and he goes to be with the Lord for eternity. Well, we see in the beginning of Acts chapter 8 that through the persecution of Stephen, the church ends up 
scattering, specifically the Helen, uh, the Hellenists. They, they start scattering, they start spreading, they go to Samaria, they go to all these different people, uh, groups sharing the gospel. Now this teaches us something. God uses the death, used the death of one of his saints to spread the church so that the gospel would be spread. God literally uses trials in our life to spread the gospel. God uses trials in our life to light that fire underneath us so that we're willing to do what God has called us to do. And I know we know if you know the Bible on any level, we know the various reasons God uses trials, right? One of the primary ones is to grow us in character. He produces precious faith through trials. But sometimes God brings trials into our life to inspire us and encourage us to start doing things differently than we're doing right now. Sometimes he's saying, hey, hey, you're too comfortable here. I need you to do something else. Get out of your comfort zone. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean moving or traveling or whatever the case may be. It could mean that. That's what it meant specifically in this text. But sometimes it's just to get us out of our comfort zone so that we'll answer the call that God placed on my life. I got comfortable here. And God says, there's the fire. You remember what I told you to do? Well, if you don't know, I'm going to light this fire under you. I'm going to bring this trial into your life so that you recognize you're not fully answering the call. See, God, he used this trial to spread the gospel throughout the whole world. And I wonder just how many of the trials that come into our life are for that reason, so that we get out of our comfort zone and answer the call that God placed on our life sometimes like we see in the text, it can be just that. And it's not just in this text. We see that was basically the life of the apostle Paul, right? He suffered more persecution probably than any other Christian that's ever existed. We'll see in the book of Philippians in Philippians chapter one, verse 12, Paul, one of his prison epistles, meaning he's writing from prison. So he's going through it. And he tells the church, encouraging them to have joy in the trial. And he says, you know what I found out? In other words, paraphrase, that my chains were for the furtherance of the gospel. God actually brought this trial into my life so that these people in prison and the um, the guards can hear the gospel. That's why God brought the trial, to further the gospel. And when we can look at our lives and the trials that happen in our life and recognize that that's often the reason that God wants the gospel to spread it makes it a little bit easier not that trials are easy and nobody enjoys them but it does shift the perspective god you're bringing me into this trial to produce character into me but not only that but to produce character in other people so that they can hear the gospel and they can be radically changed by the love of god when we have that perspective it makes it easier to take advantage of some of those opportunities that present themselves when we're going through difficult seasons is exactly what happened with the early church. And this is exactly what they do. Look what it says here. They, they went out, they traveled, and it says, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. They recognized it. They didn't allow the trial to shut them down. They didn't say, well, Stephen died, so I'm going to shut my mouth and I'm not doing ministry anymore. I'm not going to engage in the things that God called me to. No, it did just the opposite. It spurred them on. They recognized, okay, we got to share the gospel somewhere else, but we're still going to share the gospel. The trials are not going to prevent me from sharing the gospel, from answering God's calling on my life. 
Because that's this just the enemy trying to deter me from what God has called me to. But if I have the right perspective, as they did, I recognize, no, this is all for the furtherance of the gospel. So specifically, the text here is going to focus on Antioch and, and how the church grew in Antioch. Now, Antioch originally was founded in 300 B.C. by a man named Seleucus. After Alexander the Great, uh, the kingdom of Greece basically divided over several um, uh Basically, they were like generals, if you will, and he was one of them. So he names this place after his father. Now, what's interesting about this place, among many things, is this is 300 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay, this church, they traveled 300 miles spreading the gospel. So over the last, I don't know, eight years or so, we don't have an exact date around that time period. They just keep going. They just keep spreading. They just keep traveling and getting the word out there. They were willing to travel. Travel 300 miles so that people could hear the gospel. Now, Antioch was a prime spot in the Roman Empire. It was actually the third largest city during that time period. Now, Rome was the world power. So you have to think the third largest city, that's a pretty big city. It'd be like, I don't know, what's the third largest city? LA, Chicago? What is New York number one? I don't know. Anyway, so just imagine it in the United States. It's a big deal. This is a big place. Now, obviously, there weren't as many people back in that time period. Scholars suggest that there was anywhere between 300,000 and 500,000 people in this city. So there's a ton of people. There's a ton of opportunities to get the gospel across. But not only were there many people, the people that lived in Antioch primarily were known for their idolatry and sexual immorality. That's what Antioch was known for. In fact, right outside of Antioch, they had a temple to Apollo, and there was a grove and a sanctuary there uh, with this laurel tree. Now, Apollo, the story is that Eros, another Greek god, he shot Apollo with this arrow, uh, with this arrow so that he would fall in love with Daphne, who was a nymph. Her father was a god. But then he, I forget what he did with Daphne, but he made sure Daphne would never love, oh, he shot her with lead. So she would never fall in love with Apollo. So he was angry with Apollo. So Apollo loves this person, but the person's never going to love him back. So he was constantly going after, chasing her down. Well, he intended to force himself on her because he loved her that much. Now what happened is Daphne, through the help of another god, so that Apollo couldn't force him, literally rape her, he turned her into a, a laurel tree. So in that area, what they would do, they had temple prostitutes and the whole thing. They would reenact this thing, like the guy trying to force himself on the girl. And this was just one of the pieces, one of the rituals that was practiced there just to paint the picture and help you recognize there was idolatry and sexual immorality running rampant. So we got thousands, hundreds of thousands, potentially idolaters. And sexual and moral people. This is a perfect place to share the gospel. And this is exactly what God's doing here. He called them to this dark place. But at first, look what it says there in verse 19. They only preach the gospel to the Jews. 
There were many Gentiles in Antioch, but in the first verse, they're not sharing the gospel with the Gentiles, only with the Jews. Now, we remember it's pretty fresh that God opened the door to the Gentiles, and he did it through Peter. And we see in Acts chapter 11, in the beginning, he comes back to the church of Jerusalem, as I mentioned, and he explains God's opened up the door to the Gentiles. Well, apparently, uh, these believers that spread, they didn't get the news, so they didn't know that Peter was being used by God to share the gospel with the Gentiles. So they think the gospel is just for the Jews until we get to the next verse. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 20 says, but in contrast to these people that are only speaking the gospel to the Jews, he says, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Serene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So these men from Cyprus and Serene, in contrast to the people that were only sharing the gospel with Jews, they speak to the Hellenists. Now, this causes some confusion because actually when you study this and you look into this, Luke, he uses this term Hellenist to describe three different groups of people. Okay, we see it back in Acts chapter six, verse one. I'll give you some of the references In Acts six, one. We see the group that Luke is describing is a group. Uh, okay, typically Hellenist, at least a couple of the definitions. They were Jews that kind of fell into the Greek culture because Greek was the Greece was the world empire before Rome. So many of them spoke Greek. They had Greek names, the whole deal. But we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, that these Hellenists that uh, Luke is talking about were believers. So they're Jews that speak Greek, influenced by Greek culture, but they're also Christians. Then later on, in Acts chapter 9, verse 29, we see Paul trying to preach the gospel to a bunch of Hellenists. And these Hellenists try to kill him. So we know these Hellenists, they're not Christians, right? They're Jews likely that been, that have been influenced by the Greek culture, but they're not believers. So there, there are two groups. And this group specifically, the text implies that they are at least Greek speaking Greeks. But they're unbelievers, okay? And that's one of the primary points of this passage is that it wasn't just Peter that God put on his heart and showed him to share the gospel with the Gentiles. These men from Cyprus and Serene, something happened. I don't know. The Spirit must have led them. And they realized, no, the gospel isn't just for the Jews. It's also for the Greeks. So they begin sharing the gospel with Greek Gentiles. The text continues. Acts chapter 11, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. The favor of God was upon them, and many people turned to the Lord. If the favor of God wasn't upon these men from Cyprus and Serene, then guess what? No one's turning to the Lord. But at the same time, if these men aren't being led by the Spirit and walking in obedience and preaching the gospel, the men aren't turning to the Lord either. Point number one, participation invites God's favor. Participation invites God's favor. Because they were participating actively in their faith, doing what the Lord was calling them to do. They were able to see God's favor displayed through their lives. See, sometimes 
We don't realize that the Lord's hand is upon us. Sometimes we don't realize that God's favor is upon us because we're not actively pursuing him. And because we're not actively walking in obedience to the things that he's called us to do. Now, I'm not talking about salvation, but I'm going to connect salvation. Let me show you Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We're saved by grace through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, free gift from God. Not of works, you can't earn it, lest anyone should boast. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm not talking about earning God's grace. I'm talking about putting ourselves in situations where we see God's grace in our life, where we see God's favor upon us. He says, yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but with the grace that God bestows on us, there should be a desire to walk in the good works that he's prepared for us since the foundations of the earth. Grace is supposed to produce something in us. It's not just something that we receive. Titus 2.11 says that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Not that I have to, but I want to live this certain way for Jesus. See, when we... Look for those good works that God has prepared for us since the foundations of the earth. And not only look for them, walk in them. So often we see God's favor on our lives. We see him working in our lives. And not just our lives, but the people's lives around us. And this is one of the reasons I love ministry so much. I get to see God doing things in my life and not just my life. I get to see God doing people, doing things in people's lives all around me. But if I'm not participating, if I'm not pursuing him, if I'm not walking in the good works that he's called me to, I'm going to miss that stuff. I'm not going to see his grace as clearly in my life. I'm not going to see his grace as clearly in other people's lives. So because these men being obedient to the nudging of the spirit, Many people came to the Lord. It says a great number believed and turned to the Lord. A great number. I don't know how great the number is, but a great number. A lot of people turned to the Lord because of the obedience of these specific men. See, we can accomplish so much when we're pursuing God. That's priority. Our relationship with him is right. And because that relationship is right, we're looking for the good works that he's preparing for us. We're gaining our strength from him to walk in these good works. And when we do it, a great number of people can come to faith. In fact, Jesus says, you're the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You weren't meant to be hidden. You were meant to shine your light. Jesus, I'm the light of the world and I'm passing you the torch. Okay, now you're the light. I'm going. You're going to be my representation of light in this world. Then he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He gives us basically the key to reveal the light. How does it happen? Well, it starts with our pursuit of God. But then he says, the good works that you walk in so that they would glorify your Father in heaven. So because my vertical relationship is right now, I can engage in these horizontal relationships and now my light is shining. People are glorifying God because I'm participating in my faith 
And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The text continues, Acts chapter 11, verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. The news spread because of their participation. These faithful uh, people, specifically in Antioch, because that's the focus, because they were actively participating in their faith. Not only were people getting saved, the church was hearing about it. Someone from Antioch had to spread the word to the early church that God is doing wonderful things in Antioch. That's point number two. Participate and declare His wonderful works. Participate and declare His wonderful works. This was good news. This was great news. People are getting saved, both Jew and Gentile. A great number of people are getting saved by the work of God through these men and women and in Antioch. It's Psalm 96, verse 3. I'll read it for you. It says, Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. Well, for us, to be able to declare the wonderful works of God, we got to see the wonderful works of God, right? And if we want to see the wonderful works of God, then there has to be, once again, that pursuit of Him, and not just the pursuit of Him, through that pursuit of Him, that desire to walk in obedience and walk in those good works. If I asked you, what's God been doing in your life? There will be many of you that say, man, let me tell you, and I'd love to hear. And there'd be some like, I don't really, I don't really know. And I'd ask, do you don't, do you not know what God's doing in your life because you're not actively participating in your faith? Are you actively pursuing Him? Are you actively being a part of the body of Christ? Are you actively doing the things that He calls you to do? Because God wants to do amazing things in our life. And He doesn't want to just do amazing things in our life. He wants us to share about those amazing things that He's doing in our life. Why? What does that produce? Man, when people come up to me and they tell me what God's doing, sometimes it's rough stuff. Usually I get more of the hard stuff than the, I wish more people would come up with me like the good stuff. But both things are, are good in a sense in God's economy because he uses all to work together for good. But when I hear people come up to me and they say, man, the Lord, he's been blessing me in this area. He's reconciled my relationship with this friend or this family member. The Lord is uh, is just doing a tremendous work in my life. He's challenging me in certain areas or God just took me through a trial, but he taught me something so precious, so precious. And when people share these things with me, what does it do? It inspires me. It, it stirs something in me. It, it makes me go, man, you see God doing these things in your life. I want to make sure I'm not missing what God's doing in my life. And it's such a bless, a blessing and a reminder. This is what's happening in Jerusalem. The good news is spreading that the good news is going out to both Jew and Gentile. But if we want to spread the news about what God's doing in our lives, there has to be news. <laughs> there has to be something to talk about. And the more we pursue Him and walk in our faith, the more wondrous works we'll see and to be able to tell people about those wondrous works. So look what they do. They get the news and the first thing they do, it says they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. The church sent Barnabas to check 
these things out. Why? Probably for a few reasons. We know as the church continues to grow, there's more and more false teaching and false prophecy going on in the church. So a part of it was a sense of accountability. Okay, make sure that the gospel that they're preaching is the actual gospel and it's not a different gospel. But also we want you to be able to testify because you're spiritually mature that God's really doing a work in this place in Antioch. But not only that, Barnabas is referred to as what? The son of encouragement. And we're going to see him do just that. He's going to encourage these new believers in the faith. Let's look. It's Acts chapter 11, verse 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. It says, He saw the grace of God. Okay, I don't think we think about that. He saw, like, the grace of God is visible. How is the grace of God visible? He saw the transformed lives before his very eyes. It's point number three. Participation, it's a long one, helps others see the grace of God in your life. Participation helps others see the grace of God in your life. Now, I am not talking about, man, I better participate in my faith in my pursuit of God and in my involvement uh, with the body of Christ so that people will think I have the grace of God or I receive the grace of God or so that I can convince people that I'm super spiritual. No, that's like the opposite of what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when we do have this passionate desire to seek the Lord and serve the Lord in various capacities, then people see the grace of God in our lives and they say, there's something different about you. You're not like everyone else. See, Barnabas, he was actually able to see this. Jesus says something similar along the same lines. In Matthew chapter 7, um, I'll paraphrase, verses 16 to 20, he says, you'll know them by their fruit. Good tree produces good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit. Says you'll know them by their fruit. In other words, you'll know who they are based on what comes out of their lives. Paul further clarifies what this fruit is. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Because the fruit is character. So if people are truly His, there's going to be good character. There's going to be love, joy, peace, all these different things. If they're not His, there's going to be bad character. Now, I'm not talking perfect character. I'm not saying that if you are unloving one day, you're not His. Absolutely not. The Lord isn't looking for a whole fruit salad. He's looking for a little bit of fruit. He just wants to see a little bit of change, a little evidence of growth growth because when we're abiding in jesus he promises us that fruit will be produced let me show you it's acts sorry john chapter 15 this is where he says i'm the vine you are the branches throughout this text and he says in john chapter 15 verse 5 i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing it's a promise If we're abiding in the Lord and the Lord is abiding in us, then fruit is inevitable. It's going to be produced in our life. But where does this fruit come from? First and foremost, again, it comes from us pursuing God. Why? Because of the fruit of the Spirit. So we need the Spirit to be able to produce fruit. How do we get the Spirit? 
Bible says just ask. Just ask. Luke chapter 11. He's a good father. He desires to give his children his Holy Spirit. So when we ask for the Holy Spirit, and we're supposed to not just one time in your life, consistently, even throughout the day, you start seeing bad fruit in your life. Man, I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit so I can produce good fruit or he can produce good fruit through me. And as I'm pursuing the Lord and I'm asking for the Holy Spirit and praying uh, about other things as well, there's going to be evidence at the, of that pursuit. There's going to be evidence of that relationship and the way I carry out my day and the way I walk through this life and other people. Then they can say, I see the grace of God in his life. I see the grace of God in her life. Like God is doing something in that individual. He's bestowed favor. He's uh, making things happen. Um, and when I say favor, I don't mean that, okay, uh, everything is going to be good all the time. The, prom- the Bible promises um, that it's not. But even God's trials are evidence of his favor in your life. Okay, Why? Because he disciplines the children that he loves. So even the trials are evidence of the grace of God. Now that could be because you're doing something wrong. Could be because you're doing something right. We won't get too far into that. But look at how Barnabas responds when he sees the grace of God actively working in this church in Antioch. It says in verse 23, when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. The evidence of the grace of God in these people's lives literally produced gladness in Barnabas's heart. Your participation can bring others joy. Because in the body of Christ, in Christianity, it's not just about us. It's about everybody around us. So sometimes God's calling us to good works, not just for us, but for other people to see these good works again and glorify our Father in heaven. And this is one of those things that brings me so much joy. When you see God moving in someone's life, when you see God doing various things in someone's life, when you, when you know like, man, God is working in this person's life, it brings me so much joy. Paul, sorry, John, he says it like this. In 3 John chapter 1, verse 4, 3 John 1, 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to know my children are walking in truth. I have no, there's nothing more that brings me joy, obviously, aside from my relationship with the Lord. But that my children have a relationship with the Lord. And he's not talking about his biological children. He's talking about the, the church, the people that he's been investing into for so many years. Barnabas is glad because he sees fruit in their life. He sees the grace of God manifesting itself in their lives. And what does he do? It says in verse 23 that he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. He encouraged them. We see Barnabas, the son of encouragement, one of his primary spiritual gifts, among other things, is encouragement. Now, encouragement is one of many spiritual gifts, and we see it here, the same word encouragement here in the Greek, it's parakleo, is the same exact word here that's used in Romans chapter 12, where Paul talks about the spiritual gifts. And he says here in Romans chapter 12, I'll show you, verse 8, he says, he who exhorts in exhortation and he who gives with liberality. In the Bible, that word for exhort and encouragement is the same exact word. 
It's parakleo, okay? So those two things are really the same gift. It ultimately means to come alongside someone, to comfort them, to encourage them with words sometimes, sometimes to even correct them and spur them on in their faith. This is one of the things that Barnabas is known for. He's known to encourage. He's known to exhort. He's known to spur people on. But something else that's really cool about this is that the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, is referred to as the parakletos. Okay? The same beginning of the word. Very similar. Parakletos means he's the helper. He's the comforter. Literally, that's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. He comes alongside and he encourages us. He spurs us on. He nudges us. He convicts us. Why? So that we can become all God has called us to become, that we can walk in those good works, that we can do everything that he's asked us to do and be comforted in doing it. For some of you, this is one of your primary gifts. You're an encourager. You're an exhorter. When the Lord calls you to use that gift, I encourage you to use it. Barnabas recognized that this church, they were doing so so well, but they needed encouragement. But look what he encourages them on. This is super important. He encourages them and he says that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. He he encouraged them to continue in the faith. Point number four, continue to participate. Continue to participate. Christianity is often easy to start and difficult to continue. You've probably seen it. Maybe you got saved a long time ago or you've seen it with your friends. In the beginning, there's just such passion, such zeal. I'm ready to go anywhere and do anything for God. Like I'm engulfed with his love and his grace and I can't believe that he would die for me and forgive me of all the stuff that I've done. And sometimes, sadly, over time, complacency and apathy and all these different things and, and the zeal, the excitement, it starts to fade. Now it shouldn't. But sadly, practically, we do see that happen. That's why we see throughout the Bible this encouragement to continue, overcome, endure, persevere, don't stop. In Colossians chapter 1, among many other passages, Paul gives the church this encouragement. He says, Colossians chapter 1 verse 21, talks about their initial salvation and where they're at now. Colossians 1.21 And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. You were enemies of God. You weren't in relationship with God, but now you're reconciled to him. You're in relationship to him. With him. It says, in the body, verse 22, of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless, uh, blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, don't give up. Persevere. Continue. Why? Because sadly, there are so many people that walk away from the faith. 
We see this through the parable of the sower, right? Jesus, he gives us a just list a few of them. He gives us some different examples of how the seed, the word of God falls on different types of soil, types of the heart. And sometimes fall by, some fall by the wayside and before it can even do anything, the enemy comes and snatches it up. Some later on, he says they start growing and then they get choked out and they no longer grow. He says the last ones. They land on good soil. They grow and they produce fruit. Not everyone, obviously, that hears the gospel has a relationship with the Lord. See, the Bible teaches, yes, that we're saved by faith, but saving faith continues with the Lord. Saving faith continues with the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about someone that was walking with the Lord and then they're in a state of, like, they, they backslid um, and they, they're getting caught up with in different things in their life that they shouldn't be. If they're truly saved, obviously they're saved. But we see when the Bible teaches us about faith, we see that a saving faith is a faith that endures. It continues on with the Lord. Maybe there's laws and eh, disconnects with God, but ultimately there's that constant lifelong, I'm still Seeking Jesus. Even if I went through a time where I wasn't seeking him, I still love the Lord. That's what he's continuing. That's what he's communicating to him. He saw the grace of God. Saw the grace of God in their life, but he continues them to, or encourages them to continue on with the Lord. And it says, verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and in faith, and a faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So more people came to the Lord through Barnabas and uh, whatever he encouraged them with. Obviously, uh, it appears to be more than just what's stated in Acts. So more people came to the Lord. And then look what Barnabas does. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, let's break this down uh, for a second. Saul of Tarsus, also referred to as Paul, also named Paul. He's been gone for some time. Now, for us, it's just two chapters. But between Acts chapter 9, verse 30, and this text here, Acts chapter 11, it's been somewhere between 8 and 11 years. It's been about a decade since Paul was converted. You remember, he was being persecuted, and they sent him back home to Tarsus. So for all we know, we don't know what Paul was doing ministry in Tarsus. It seems like he's pretty low-key. There's nothing in the Bible to talk about what Paul was doing specifically while he was in Tarsus. See, God, contrary to what we often assume, When he showed up on the road to Damascus to encounter Saul, we always talk about his great conversion. And it was. It's an amazing conversion. But Paul, he didn't just get converted and then his ministry just started thriving. No, look what happens. When he gets converted, yeah, the Lord produces that passion in him. He starts sharing the gospel. People just want to kill him. It doesn't say that anyone came to faith from Paul's preaching in the beginning. So then he goes to Saudi Arabia, he goes to Arabia to study the word of God with the Lord, having things revealed to him by the Spirit. Uh, he comes back, then he's sent to Tarsus. And he's there for a long time as God's preparing him 
for the ministry that he has for him. And this ministry we see is really going to take off here in Antioch. So Paul, as we know, he was a Pharisee. In that time period, the Pharisees were the, also the rabbis, okay? The Pharisees were considered experts in the law. They knew the word and they liked to talk about the word. Typically, if you had, um, you know, a synagogue setting on the Sabbath, uh, generally speaking, it would be a Pharisee that came up to communicate. We see Jesus did that too, and he certainly wasn't a Pharisee. But the point is, Paul, he says in uh, Philippians chapter 3, that he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, dude, he says, man, basically, I was better in my my, uh, under Gamaliel than everybody else. Like I was the real deal in my studies of the Old Testament. Paul's a teacher. He has many other gifts. He'll become an apostle. But the reason Barnabas comes to get Saul of Tarsus is because he needs help teaching the word of God. Look what the text is trying to show us. Three times at least this is mentioned. In verse 20, Acts chapter 11, verse 20, it says that they preached the word and that a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then it says Barnabas encouraged them with words and more people came to the Lord. And now it says, Paul, he comes on the scene, him and Barnabas, they teach for a whole year and more people come to the Lord. What's the point? For disciples to be made, the word has to be taught. An accurate teaching of the word of God. We see that's absolutely pivotal in making disciples. This is one of the main reasons that Antioch blew up with believers. They had some really gifted teachers teaching the truth of God's word. Not just Barnabas, not just Paul. We'll see some other guys down the road. Peter will come here and teach. And this place prospers in spirituality because they're being fed the word of God. God. Look what else it says here at the end of verse 26. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was a very dark place filled with idolatry and sexual immorality. And it was in this dark place that the light of Christ was made known. (laughs) They recognized, wow, these people are very different than what we're used to. Their culture is very different than our culture. This word Christians can mean a few things. It means party of Jesus, literally like the party of Jesus. Um, Jesus people uh, or also little Christ's. Okay, uh, traditionally in that time period, you would add I-A-N-S uh, to the name of the leader of a group. Okay, for example, they had the uh, Caesareans, okay, those that followed Caesar. Um, so we see that's what they were doing. The, these believers look so much like Jesus. They, they, these are obviously Jesus followers. They're following Jesus. It doesn't say that they name themselves that. It says other people, they started calling them Christians and Antioch. It was outside people looking in and saying, wow, these people are like that Jesus guy. They're like Jesus Christ. And it doesn't say that they told people to start calling them Christians. People just started calling them Christians. What's the point? It's not bad to tell people you're a Christian. I do it when conversation comes up. It's hard for me in being a pastor to not, I, it's like, it's almost impossible for me to not talk about Christianity in a conversation. It's just, it's like my life. Uh, but, uh, the point that I'm trying to make here is that we shouldn't always have to tell people that we're Christians. 
People should notice the difference. People should see the Lord working in our life, recognize that, hey, these people aren't like the rest of the people. Now, again, I, there's nothing wrong with telling people, yeah, I'm a Christian. Absolutely nothing wrong with that, but we necessarily, we shouldn't necessarily have to. These Christians were called Christians because people saw a difference in the way that they lived. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, almost done. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So prophets come from Jerusalem. Text specifically focuses on Agabus, who we'll see later on in Acts chapter 21. He was a prophet. What's prophecy? Either foretelling or forthtelling the word of God. Uh, prophets are God's one of God's mouth. He uses them as a mouthpiece to communicate his word. It could be something new that lines up with scripture about something that's happening um, in the future. It also could be something that, hey, I'm communicating and recognizing that this prophecy was fulfilled. I'm sharing this truth as we speak. We'll get into the gift of prophecy in more detail when we do our afterglow service, the filled service, we'll give people an opportunity to operate in the gift of prophecy if they have a word for the church or for an individual, the gift of knowledge, the gift of tongues. We can't you do all the gifts in that setting, but as the Lord leads, we'll uh, choose some specific gifts to operate in. Agabus, he has this prophecy that there's going to be a famine throughout all the world. Now, this wasn't just a hunch. This was revealed to Agabus by the Holy Spirit. It's not like he was just saying, hmm, seems like there's going to be a famine. <laughs> no, the Lord nudged him and revealed this truth and said there's going to be a famine. But Agabus had to communicate. It took faith. It always takes faith to operate in spiritual gifts. What if Agabus says this thing and it doesn't end up happening? Now he's a false prophet, you know? He had to have the faith uh, in the Lord that this prophecy was truly from God. But that's the reality of every spiritual gift. Every spiritual gift requires faith. God gives us a spiritual gift and sometimes he gives us a nudge to operate in that gift. Could have been, could be encouragement like we were talking about earlier. And the Lord says, hey, I want you to encourage that individual. Don't keep your mouth shut. Encourage him. Maybe it's intercession and God says, hey, I want you to pray for that individual. It takes faith to go pray for someone, especially if you don't know him very well. See, all the spiritual gifts, they require faith in Agabus. He had the faith to operate in this gift. Later on, we do see through history that there were famines during Claudius's, uh, Claudius Caesar's reign. We see this in other historical records, not just the Bible. And based on how Luke's communicating it, um, it appears that he's communicating it after the fact, okay? Because he's writing this, this, all this stuff already happened in the book of Acts. He's not just writing it as it happens. Uh, it already happened. So um, he's writing it from, a, Agabus said this, and this is actually what happened. That's uh, how you know if the prophet is legit. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, basically, um, if someone, you know, speaks a prophecy and it doesn't come true, you know they're not a legit prophet. If it comes true, then yeah, you'll know. Agabus was proven to be a legitimate prophet. Look at verse 29. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So 
each of the disciples, they found out that the church in Jerusalem, for some reason, they needed support. They needed funds to continue the ministry there. Again, that's where the church started. There's probably a ton of people still believe that are believers in Jerusalem. We don't know what the funds were for specifically. We just know that there was a need. And these disciples in Antioch, it says, they each, according to his ability, determined to send relief. Some gave more because they had more. Some gave less because they had less. But each gave everything they could according to their own ability. And this is what the Lord asks of us. I'm not talking about uh, simply finances. Uh, I'm talking about everything. God, he desires us to give him our all. He doesn't desire or he doesn't ask for us to give him what we don't have, but he does ask us to give him all that we do have. And when we give God all that we have, he can do amazing things through our life. Let me show you. It's John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. Verse 8 says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter... Simon, uh, Simon Peter's brother said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? What are we going to do with five barley loaves and two fish when there's 5,000 people is what Andrew is asking. He says, then Jesus said to him, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down and number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down. And likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. And they even had leftovers. Doesn't make sense to me that five loaves and two fish could feed 5,000 people. Probably doesn't make sense to you too. But here's the point again. God, he's asking us to give him everything we have. And when we put everything we have in the hands of the Lord, he can multiply it. He can bless other people through it. It's easy for us to to minimize our abilities, our talents, our treasures, whatever the case may be. Uh, I don't really have much to bring to the table. And part of that is true, but there's also reality, as I mentioned before, there's certain things that God's given you specifically for the edification of the body and the glory of God. We're called to use those things for his glory and edification. If we don't use them, God doesn't get glorified and the body doesn't get edified. It's not our place to measure this gift or that gift, this ability or that ability, my intellect or my lack of intellect, whatever God's given me, it's not our place to measure those things. It's our place to give them to the Lord and just be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us and let him do amazing things in and through our life when we give them our all. That's exactly what we see. These brethren in Antioch, do for the church in Jerusalem. They gave them everything that they could according to their own ability. Yes, some could give more, some could give less, but they gave what they could. In Acts chapter 11, verse 30, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now this is likely, this is a, Saul, we see him go to Jerusalem um, a few times. I think f- 
for specifically as a disciple. And this seems like the second one that's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to get there in about six weeks, and I'll talk about this further. There's some debate about that, but I'm mentioning it now, so when we get there later, because um, we'll, we'll point back to this text. But something I want to point out more than anything else is it said this they also did. What is he talking about? They didn't just determine to send relief. They actually did it. They didn't just intend on being generous. They actually followed through with it. This is the fifth and final point. Real quick one. Don't just intend to participate. Participate. Don't just intend to participate. Participate. This they also did. Sometimes we have great intentions, but our intentions don't get us to our destination. Our direction does. We can have the best intentions in the world. I intended to be more generous. I intended to put my whole heart into this thing. I intended fill in the blank, but I never did it. And now what? I didn't get to the destination that I desired. See, this could be anything. Maybe you... um, Maybe you want to lose weight or maybe you want to gain weight. If I say, hey, I want to lose 10 pounds and I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts every single morning and stuffing my face with donuts, guess what? I can have great intentions to lose 10 pounds. It ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. But this is true for our spiritual walk as well. Sometimes we intend on, I'm going to start getting up earlier and reading the word. Uh, I'm going to start praying longer. I want to spend more time in prayer. Uh, I want to start getting plugged in a little bit more. I want to start serving more. And we can have great intentions, and those are great intentions. But your intentions will not get you there. It's the direction that you take. It's the steps that you take. So it's not just, yeah, I have great intentions of participating and being more active in my faith. I'm actually going to do it. Because when we look at the gospel, this is one of the Lord's desires for us. In fact, this is one of the reasons that he died for us. Let me show you. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and this is where we'll close. Verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Actually, look at verse 14, sorry. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What's he saying? He died for me, I should live for him. He he died for me. And yes, he died so that I could spend eternal life with him. But his desire with that death is not that I just spend eternity with him, but that I live for him now, here, in the present. Now, that isn't like a Christian obligation thing, like you have to do this to really be saved. No, we know we're saved by grace through faith. We already talked about that. But grace, once again, it should produce that desire in me that I want to seek the Lord in relationship. I want to serve. I want to be involved with what God is doing. I don't want to miss it. This shouldn't be a burden. We should look at it as a privilege. But there's got to be that desire there. If I'm going to actively pursue the Lord, if I'm going to actively be a part of the body of Christ, I can intend on doing it. I could talk about it. I could tell my friends about it. But until I take the steps and walk in that direction, then they're just intentions that don't necessarily lead to participation. See, God provided, provides so many opportunities to spend time with Him, but also spend time with His family, and edifying the body of Christ. Both those things are important. The Spirit empowers us to participate, but the participation 
is in our hands as to whether or not we choose to follow through. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the truths in this chapter, um, the ones we talked about, the ones we didn't. God, I pray that you would continue to fill us, Lord, that you would fill every person in this room, God, that they would constantly be being filled on a regular basis, uh, Lord, that they would recognize how much you love them, that I would recognize how much you love me, Lord, and, and through that love, as Paul said, the love of Christ compels us, uh, we would desire to live our lives for you, and we consider the life that you live for us and the death that you died for us, Lord, it would be a privilege and an honor for us to live every moment of our days for you, God. So please bless us throughout the week. In Jesus' name, amen.